Hello and welcome to Keyframes, a podcast about anime. I'm your host, Ben Halliburton. With me today is Andy. Hi, hi, hi. Duncan. Hey there. And Jeff. Yellow. The core four back for some mm. more. For this episode, we are going to talk about Tezuka mm. and uh, I don't know how we decided to euphemize this Tezuka adjacent properties. Uh, de- <laughs> Tezuka, Tezuka and derivatives. <laughs> Tezuka and Tezuka accessories. Yeah. Yes. Tezuka and the people who love Tezuka. We are we are going to be talking about two shows that have both debuted on streaming recently. The first uh Phoenix Eden 17 or Hinotori Sora no Eden uh, is on Hulu, at least in the US. It's four episodes from one of those one of those ding dang Phoenix stories that was uh, Tezuka's last work, Osamu Tezuka. And we are also talking about Pluto, which isn't uh, created by Tezuka. It is a Tezuka inspired feels dishonest. Yeah, it's a, it's a Naoki Urasawa. Yes, joint um, manga but was key of monster and 20th century boys mm-hmm. and probably some other shit too uh yeah but but given that's uh, on netflix yeah osama uh osama blessings or the estate's blessings for him to write this story mm-hmm. it, so yeah we watched both of those i think all of us yep. watched yep. all mm-hmm. of it we were yep. good wow <laughs> We're like actual no hosts of an out. actual so show. <laughs> yeah, wow. It's like we've been doing this for, for eight years. So. We read the brief and we filled it. And yeah. I slightly surpassed it by reading the manga of the original uh, Pluto as well. I know. So, <laughs> cool, cool. Well, I would like to hear more about that. But first, Duncan, I think you're the one who it was, kind it was of kind came of a, up with a, this a being code pitch, but like I, I think it, yeah. I, yeah. I pushed it towards its current form. And the reason is because like Tezuka is like probably arguably the one person most responsible for the way manga and anime have been produced and published since the post-war period he's like incredibly influential like it's hard to underestimate his impact just on an industry and then I mean he basically created the industry yeah, like, yeah. There was yeah and he no, created like was all no... the things that Manga, all the things we don't make sense like sweat drops and the, that like anger burst like those Nose are all bleeds. like visual language that he yeah <laughs> he invented all of that and then when people ask 30 years later like why the why the fuck do they sweat when they yeah. get nervous yeah and, and then you've got the fact that as some of those things he brought to it aren't necessarily good like he was an incredibly complicated individual like he's like a self-taught artist who went to medical school and like drawing was almost a compulsion to him he just did it constantly every day and mm-hmm. he was an extremely unconventional worker didn't didn't really get on with his own studio <laughs> bosses and this the problem is that he then went on to create the template for the current studio system which everyone knows is extremely exploitative and works requires an incredibly fanatical devotion to it's craft from everyone and works them to the bone and it's like just because it was good for you and worked for you doesn't mean it'll work for everyone but because it was Tezuka yeah. it now has to and like in terms of cultural impact he's probably most famous for things like his his probably shown the stuff for kids such as Astro Boy most prominently Princess Knight Kimber the White Lion uh, but his his medical background was a huge uh, influence on him because he also did blackjack his his probably his the other really 
big work for him and uh where you have a wandering genius surgeon going around and and saving people in for huge fees uh, which we'll all note a little cameo of later and we also have often with a often with a poison pill inside indeed. them too uh, <laughs> and uh, we also have a, a show we discussed a couple of years back which is the uh, malformed ronin uh, hyakumu in a dot dot yeah, your your mouth really wanted to say Doro Hidoro. Yeah. And but he like these were all massive hits, but he was also quite also quite a champion of more experimental works. Phoenix, which we talked about before, was one, and he actually created a magazine called Com, which we'll get will also come up later. Uh-huh. Uh, to promote and produce um, uh, for both of his his own works and others, and he made a Phoenix. He made uh, he did a, a biography of the life of Buddha, and he did a, a and he did a message to Adolf, a book about Hitler. Which uh, yeah, no, people don't tend to do that one. That's that's not a, a particular ground people are eager to tread on. But uh, he was hmm. ready to actually take a shot at it and uh, ask questions about out the nature of uh human hatred and uh the way that people twist and uh and go in on themselves and and like Tezuka like was for all these things you see you see about him as a person he like him saying like oh, like art has great value and then makes people work incredibly hard for very low money to <laughs> make art like saying that the planet is incredibly uh precious and but also his works being quite melancholy and uh, non optimistic, which he's he was a, a doomer before his time. I would say he was so prolific that even after he died in 1989, like it was just continuous. Like it, every year there'd be a, a Tezuka work, not necessarily one which should make it over to the Western shores, or in any big way, but. It, there were constantly uh, his own uh, studio and other licensed studios every year, two free works out. Uh, but so it's not unusual that we're talking about two Tezuka works. But what does make it unusual is, as Ben said, that these works, which aren't necessarily wholly original, um, Phoenix Eden 17 is a, a sort of iteration on some of his uh, uh, Phoenix uh, manga anthology stuff. And, uh, Pluto is a, a retake on the Astro Boy Great. Uh, what's the f- full title and Andy of that particular arc? I forget it totally. Greatest robot on um, Earth. Yes, the greatest robot yeah. um, arc. And like I think, in some ways, Tezuka's proved to be like the perfect person for in, to have his work adapted by other people because he famously did have a recurring cast of characters he liked to treat as actors within the works and so it's perfectly natural that they're used to tell new tales and strangely considering just how precious anime and manga tend to be about stories being told exactly how they were things like pluto and uh like uh the this latest phoenix seem to be very well received in general and so it's i think it's kind of interesting to find someone who so much made the mold but in some ways also broke it 
Yeah, no, no, I, I agree that like, it's very funny that there's like the institutionalized commercial Tezuka and then there's the weird Tezuka who has these pes- these pessimistic stories and these like grotesque characters and often at best ends with the conclusion that like very few of us will survive our own stupidity, which doesn't seem like a, a marketable, maybe, maybe nowadays it is, but yeah. at the time wasn't a very marketable perspective. Um, I, if we if we want to talk about like our own relationships with Tezuka, I really only know him by like reading animation history and kind of like working backwards from stuff I like to him being the prototype. I think my closest interaction with him has been watching Blue Blazes, where <laughs> uh, Okada Toshio has a very unflattering, <laughs> unflattering but still kind of loving uh, impression of him, where he shows up mad that the Daikon people didn't ask him for like didn't ask him for permission and feature more of his characters when they made their own little homage thing. And he was kind of a megalomaniac, but I think you have to be a megalomaniac to create an entire like commercial institutional genre of, of animation. Um, and yeah, his legacy is all over uh, animation from the idea of limited animation to this ridiculous perma crunch philosophy that is basically chickens coming home to roost nowadays in the past mm past decade or so mm-hmm. where, yeah it's not sustainable two generations later mm-hmm. it's not sustainable <laughs> yeah yeah i've never been a, a close watcher reader of tezuka i watched astro boy when it was here as just another throwaway cartoon show i had no idea mm-hmm. you know it's providence or like its impact it was just like one of the lesser shows that i would watch on like a sunday morning along with like the smoggies or something like that some weird belgian cartoon it was all like <laughs> what, what the all the same for me I... with bill and ben flower pot men that sort of thing <laughs> oh, yeah, that's british but yeah the smoggies <laughs> the fuck yeah I, I, i'm pretty sure that's french um <laughs> So you oh, might, yeah, have, no, might not have gotten it over there. The, the smoggies. <laughs> yeah, we won't, we won't uh, be getting any French adaptations of anything unless it's Mizzy. Which is... Uh, nobody remembers that. Just and I, 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 I read Ayako, which is an extremely bleak uh, <laughs> story about a girl being like basically abused by her family in a post-war Japan setting which I think also might give hints as to, you know, the origins of some of Tezuka's own misanthropy and pessimism of, you know, being of the age of like, you know, watching his country get crushed and occupied and his general outlook of the, you know, the the corruption and the cynicism happening there, you know, but still not ultimately, you know, crushing the human spirit, but not necessarily doing it any good either. Um, and you know, the, the good and the bad sort of being eternally at war with itself in the human spirit. Um, and yeah, I I started watching Eden and and I was like, oh, you know, this is hardly even recognizable as a Tezuka thing because, you know, I had, I hadn't even watched it. Well, I I mean, I hadn't watched, like I hadn't watched a lot of his work. I didn't watch the original series i realized that like oh this is like that thing that those guys were talking about a couple of years ago i should maybe i should go back there and then you guys warned me off and say no no, 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 don't don't bother don't bother just watch it as its own thing and remembering what you guys said about that show i was like okay yeah this is definitely more phoenix for sure that asshole bird (laughs) i think was the way we described (laughs) 
Yeah, why why he be making us relive our mistakes throughout all eternity? <laughs> this doesn't seem fair. We're just humans. Exactly. We just want to be, drink, drink to liquor be... and buy guns, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but only when you when you slip a pill, multiple like you get a whole bunch of pills, you put them in a tube, you take them in a robot, and then that robot just spits pill by pill into the water. Yeah. I love that animation really made me laugh. I was like, this is yeah. as fuck. <laughs> oh, the animation for both of these is is, is stunning, and yeah. it's it's actually kind of refreshing to watch like Tezuka and Tezuka derived products because, mm-hmm. like, he does like everyone's got a big nose except for the ladies. <laughs> yeah, but um, and they they have like they have like title sharp... drop for the podcast well, episode. We, did, title, we, didn't, by the we way. didn't quite get the the full big big nose which, big which, nose. which for for eden 17 uh, but we kind of think we got someone pretty close in uh, uh pluto like it's yeah. it, it's like if we got if you think back to uh doro um like that that was yeah. that was really tr- traditional tezuka uh, designs like whereas these two are both a step beyond because in both cases you've got a very strong directorial in one case and uh I guess authorial voice on top of that, because um, uh, Phoenix Eden Seventeen uh, is directed by uh, Nishimi Shojiro. Yeah, who Shojiro. Uh, who did uh, t- probably most well known did uh, Tekon Kinkrit, which was a, a great mm. little film, um, mm. and it shares so much of uh, visual language with this one. Um, like you can. The the designs and the of the cats here probably share more with that than they do with uh, Tezuka at times. Though they're, they're more strained, I would say overall. Like that was probably a more riotous and, uh, but there's it still has that same grime, that weathered feel which he he loves. Um, mm-hmm. Like my relationship with uh, Tezuka, um, like yeah. the, the the first thing for me was uh, I I sort of knew of him just generally and then i ended up reading uh all of buddha uh like just because my local library just happened to have the first i think it was six or seven volumes of it and it was just there in the graphic novel section and being a kid who loved manga and comics it was just like okay i'll read that one i'll read this one and it's okay here's a whole series i'll, I'll go through that and yeah it's it's, it's just like a like Buddhism, I think in the West just gets kind of white whitewashed is a weird way of describing it, but it kind of gets all. <laughs> yeah, it kind of gets boiled down to like she and Shankar yeah, and yeah. like have you yeah. have you centered yourself and gym bros and it's a collection of practices associated by dogma, yeah. uh, which is not how Buddhism is supposed to be experienced. But if you come from a Western religion background like what are the tenets of buddhism yeah. and you can just like float a half dozen things and they're all true they are they all will not get you enlightenment like loving jesus christ will get you to heaven yeah uh so yeah it's, it's just it's far it's like what it's far more a story about what suffering it takes someone to get to that point to make that thing yeah. and to make that that acceptance of what can be a quite a uh, uh, is not supposed to be an easy to accept uh thing like the whole all of it it is is like this is a very very hard thing for a human to do it's it almost goes against our nature and his his work was 
his take on it was just putting humans in that story and and showing how they struggle against their natures to to be better for it. Yeah, and I think to to focus back on Hinatori, um, both Eden Seventeen and Simplicitaire, uh, <laughs> that we we have this idea of demythologizing fantastical characters and really trying to create characters who are flawed and whose mistakes mm-hmm. trap them in a place where they can't reach what their goal is. Cause like to run through the plot of um, Phoenix Eden 17, um, a couple of fuckwad idiots go to a planet with no water and then they find water, but the guy gets crushed to death while he does no, he dr- but they have a he baby. Gets, he gets drowned. Yeah, that is like he gets my drowned. worst. That is my like ultimate nightmare. <laughs> Crushed to death. So the ultimate to, nightmare. So he, he, gets, he gets he gets stuck under some machinery, and then yeah. water just slowly fills up. That shit is that's terrifying. That's my <laughs> that's how I. That's I mean, my worst way to go. I think Tezuka fucking loves that. Tezuka fucking loves to trap you with like <laughs> horrific consequences oh, yeah. of your actions. So yeah. So yeah. Husband dies. Mother raises her child, and then, for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me, decides to go into cryo sleep and accidentally programs the microwave the wrong way so that she only <laughs> wakes up in in thirteen hundred years. Yeah, um, the, the boy has a meltdown where he destroys his only friend, and then he fucks a shapeshifter blob alien and creates a perfect society. Pour one out for quarter to three. I feel like I, I, feel I, like I, I just I was just gonna say on on the mother cryos genesis bit. So I first thought what I think a lot of people were thinking, where he's like, he wants to fuck his son, like her son. Like they're clearly trying to preserve the human race. But then when I like look back on it, I I I have a feeling it's a lot more of a pure intention than that. I have a feeling it was more pure, like pure incest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because... I think her, I think her pure intention was purely that she was either going to kill herself or do that because we see her no, bring I... herself to the moment of like nearly killing her child because well, she's I... terrified of him growing up alone, mm-hmm. and so I... she's thinking yeah. maybe, it's, oh, it's... maybe I could just like I can get over this hump of being the sole person responsible for this child by being completely irresponsible and letting a robot look, look race sometimes him. mommy needs a nap <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's like uh let's yeah. let shiva the the poor robot who cannot defend himself from having his head smashed in yeah. by a teenager going aggro on him anyway uh oh, no, i was just gonna up. say i was just gonna say <laughs> yeah, my please. point was was that because i mean well, i watched it first episode by myself and, and then uh, Mids wanted to watch it, so I watched it again with her. And on re-watching it, I more saw it as like, she just wanted to be there for the son so that they both yeah. die at the same age, as opposed to like my initial thought of them like incestuously repopulating a planet. <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't disagree with you, Andy, except that when he does find a Moopy, the shapeshifter, it yeah. does show up as his mom. It's like, hey, you missed your also, mom, right? But also that's the only woman. <laughs> and then they had an entire planet's worth of kids. So yeah, something, that, something fucked happened it's, there. It's the only woman image image of a woman he yeah. ever knows we'll, we'll get to so, this that's, that's the, so like is it is there's it, no is, ship's database of just porn <laughs> why didn't they do this yeah, he's he's too just, fuck just lifts he up one, one of the seats finds his dad's stash yeah. it's like oh yeah. Yeah. 
sit, sit some some corn. Oh, you ask that Moopy, can you show me a can you show me a woman who's not my mom? And the Moopy's like, no, sorry, man. This is the only woman I know. <laughs> you apart, gotta fuck from, me, though. apart from the woman who she then transforms into later, who's like this little fucking oh, yeah, the matronly, matronly yeah. lady. Yeah. Like, but you know, he only has he only has seen one woman and has slept next to that fucking floating coffin. So, like so question: years. the first time they had a kid and it was a woman, he's like, "Oh my god, they can look, they can look, look not like my mom." Okay. <laughs> I guess I'll fuck but that anyway. next. <laughs> yes. So anyway, mom wakes up. Son's been dead for twelve hundred years. She decides to go to Earth with the dumbest alien. Great grandchild she's ever had. Great grandchild, come. Okay, why not? Continue. So, 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 so the so the most alienated I was by the designs was how Com looks, where he is wearing, he's wearing a vest with a sleeveless dicky and a bow tie under it and bloomers. Yeah, and. I was just like, why, like, why did they dress everybody like Chippendales dancers <laughs> in your future society? Uh, I don't know. Like, I think I looked at our old episode 27, Robo Brains, where we talked about Hinatori, and I just talked about Weird Al Effect. And I constantly feel that watching Tezuka, where I'm like, I have had an incredibly intimate intellectual relationship with works that are like three steps removed from Tezuka. And that's why I always feel this like uncanniness. And there's parts I really like about like the characters are dumbasses in Tezuka, in Tezuka. <laughs> like even, even in Pluto where I think the plotting's a lot tired and the characterization's a lot more coherent. It is fundamentally a show about people listening to their emotions too much and making mistakes that fuck them over before they've even realized that they're messing up. Mm. And so having, having the cryo sleep mom be like, yeah, I want to go back to earth. And they're like, okay. And then they find a guy who gets mad at them for wrecking his ship when he ran into it with his own ship. Um, and, and, and he's like, yeah, earth's destroyed. And she's like, Oh, we'll keep going anyway. It'll be fine. And it definitely isn't fine. Yeah. And everybody involved suffers horribly, but that's kind of just like the vibe of Hinotori. I don't know. The idea of being trapped in suffering, the idea of the essential nature of humans being unable to prevent dumb, awful shit from happening mm -hmm. to you just by your nature. You just create suffering by living. And that's kind of obfuscated in Pluto. I think we'll talk about both in a lot more detail. But there is this idea that there's just like flaws built into humans that cause fucked up shit to happen all the time, no matter how much you science your way out of it or reason your way out of it or even compassion your way out of it. See, I thought the ending of Hinotori was one of hope, of like her being like, mm. we can rebuild yeah, this. We we have we have a seed. <laughs> like we we can rebuild it. We can repopulate this world. They've already done it once. Why can't they do it again? Like, I mean, I mean, I think it's about it's about the poison of hope. Like, not necessarily it's bad, but like to rebuild an entire planetary civilization with with one seed and like the hubris that humans think we can undo all our mistakes. I don't think you're wrong to take that away, Andy, but I do think it's like both the original 2004 anime. I, I, I kind of wish I'd re I read the manga at this point, mm. but maybe not because I got really annoyed watching I, <laughs> watching Eden 17. I, um, I did not get annoyed. I'm just, I liked I'm just it. cranky. <laughs> I'm, I actually think I, I, did, I had to take a break from Scott, the spot Scott Pilgrim anime. So I was going to come in kind of salty. Yeah. I, I actually enjoyed Eden 17 more than Astro boy purely because it was 
uh, like eight times shorter. Um, <laughs> Very true. Yeah, we need to talk about hour hour long anime oh, episodes because that's not acceptable. It, it was yeah. uh, not it, acceptable. I, right, and it, it was annoying, especially because it's like there's always a halfway point where you're like. Yes, That's, there's there's a build up. There's a, there's a dramatic moment, and then it's like, Doom! and then I'm like, and we switch to a completely different character, but uh, we have to keep watching the episode. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, and, and every time we were like, "Fuck, this is long. This is fucking long." Car- Karma Burn, uh, E-Virus and Karma Burn posted a whole thing about like not sure what he's supposed to make of Pluto, and he's like, "Well, it's technically a full two core anime because it's almost three episodes worth with every episode, <laughs> yeah. which translates out to twenty four. And like, man, the number of times that I that I was like, "Oh wow, they had a perfect chiasmus here." So, in terms of drawing me into a coherent story that kept me going and going, I do think that Eden Seventeen is the better work in that. Like, I can just watch a bunch of hippie fuckwits have an <laughs> awful space exploration. Uh, I, I liked it. I, and just yeah. and just a little bit of sexual assault because, you know, gotta, gotta spice it up. <laughs> you gotta... I guess. <laughs> that shit never goes away. Yeah. Uh, no, it doesn't, I guess. I, I think Speaking uh, of humans yeah. trapped in their own folly. <laughs> Get some space wine down you and you'll pretend it's anyone. Oh, dear. Was that wine or liquor? Because I could not tell the difference based on how much it affected. Well, it was given by the strange monkey man, so it probably wasn't good either way. Yeah. Mm. Yep. The suspiciously uh, large-nosed monkey yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I liked Eden 17 overall. Like, I think that, that, that four-episode length helped it stay more coherent, where the original series mm. just kind of bloated into incoherence. And I, I think it just had, like fairly consistent themes throughout i i really liked that just that it has this opening shot of like a ship alone in the vastness of space and it's like it wants to get across like all uh, the worries and craziness of the human condition are still tiny in the universe as as a general thing and you have this moment when the, the the ships landed in the first episode and romy and george get out and they they are like so happy and so joyful at being together and then and this, it, it goes from this this these va- this vast cosmic cosmic vista to two people just happy hugging and 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 joyful with like all this really well animated small intimacies and affection and too much affection as it turns out far too much affection shall we get out of our spacesuits? <laughs> Fucking zero G. <laughs> yeah, Th- that whole t- turn of events completely messes it up because, like, they didn't. These, as we find out by the end of of the series, like these are incredibly naive people. They've been <laughs> brought up in a really controlled existence. Like, they don't really ha- have any agency. And when they're given a uh, space and time together, like they just don't think of the consequences. And well, so you say that, but you find out that fucking uh Romy is like a perfect space DNA like human DNA person who's chapters on how do, how do we feel about that revelation? How do how do we feel about like <laughs> I was like no, because oh, okay. I, I really want, I, no, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trolling or like throwing no, shade no, no. on this. I genuinely wonder what was felt to be brought to the plot by like, oh, Romy has perfect DNA and our degenerate human DNA is no longer as good as the DNA that she had a millennium I, and a half ago. I think I, I felt really weird I, that like, it felt like a pretext for why they would freeze her. But if Earth is so fucked anyway, why not the fact that she hasn't I've been felt- on Earth while it got turned into a weird 
I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I felt that it was it was more like a pretext as why she's going to be killed. Um, yeah. so that she could have all her organs separated and put into tiny jars. Like she gets a cured. Yeah. 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 Um <laughs> I, I, f- I thought it was a wild revelation, but then it makes sense as to why Romy and George left the planet in the first place. But I thought they were just in love. Like why <laughs> well, they were in love, but they're also like we don't have to think about anything anymore. We can just be in you know, we can just we can, we can just go to a plant with no water and then I can well, die under some water. <laughs> Somewhere. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when at the beginning like, of the show, I definitely some got some water here. I definitely got the sense that like they were escaping from something. Like I thought yeah. that w- it was a direct sequel to something that had happened previously, and that's what sent me back to the original show. But it turns out, nope, it wasn't. Uh, no, and they, you know, also... and, they, and they went and they went to this planet yeah, because right. they thought there was already a colony there, and that it was yes, a stable correct. human environment. Right. And then they found right. out that they were wrong when they got there, and eventually. You know, with an, a bunch of blood, sweat, and tears, and one of them dying, they figured out, oh, here's the water. Luckily, we have our like wonder robot that will keep the rest of us alive. And, <laughs> Unless one of us beats us with a hammer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the and the revelation that she was going to be killed sort of I thought played into the idea that you know we the original Earth has been claimed by sort of a self-professed you know pure society. Nobody else is allowed to come in. I think that probably also harkens back to a lot of the sort of cultural memory of Japan itself, as well as other, uh, you know, what I mean, what we're seeing now, like, you know, eth- you know, fascistic ethno states sort of uh, justifying their atrocities with, you know, talk about purity and sort of like scientifying, you know, their own sort of, you know, perversities. Yeah. yeah. And, you know her existence within that world i think you know escaping you know naively i think makes sense in the context of like you know this is a story about like ben was saying like the poison of hope but also sort of the endurance of the human spirit and i also think somebody was because i think that like the chihiro robot that rescues them on earth that was a character from a previous yeah, she's in a couple of other stories. Yeah. yeah. And mm. in Phoenix. She's based on a childhood friend of Romy who had, you know, was a, maybe in the same thing. And I'll, you know, we'll get into this with Pluto as well. But like, I think at its basic level, I think this was also somewhat poisoned by like the fanfic effect where <laughs> people wanted to like tie things back in clever ways to the original work that didn't necessarily okay. add to the work itself got bad news jeff the nostalgia arc pulls a bunch of stuff from previous stories because that's just how tezuka roll and uh makimura and uh and a couple other characters are all from previous ones like the characters recur kind of at random okay. in the anthology but so I, um this is kind of what the the duncan was saying though is that that's kind of what tezuka does right he doesn't view characters yeah. as individual characters but more like actors that he can pull in at any point true but shorthand in, in, in phoenix in phoenix they literally like the same characters from a previous story mm. just show up yeah. again it's been a thousand years and they're just there stop stop questioning it's it's rebirth it's buddha shit you know yeah. and like i do think that you can't understand phoenix 
any of the installments without like having a kind of Buddhist mindset of like suffering is inevitable. It's a nature of existence. Um, rebirth happens. So like you will see the same things over and over the longer you mm -hmm. like pull out your vision. And especially the idea that like holding on to the past is, is a burden that invites disaster. And like you were saying, Duncan, I don't know if this is something that you wanted to say on your own, but before we started recording, you were talking about how there are multiple earths and people are kind of like always like there will always be earths for us to look back to. Even if mm -hmm. we can't find the original earth, there's still something that's just like, oh, wow, it's like earth, except there's carnivorous flowers and stone dinosaurs uh, and what and what have you. And so like the idea that we're just there is no way to avoid the, making the mistakes that we've made. Um, and it's just about like what individual characters derive from the experience. And I kind of want to go to um, what's his name? The, the astronaut they found um, like his last scene is him like realizing a bunch of things about calm and then having like like laughing hysterically as he's like lifted off of this beautiful Eden yeah. Island before it's nuked for no apparent reason. There <sighs> is like this idea of just like kind of difficult, hard to understand Cohen like res revelation that that appears in this in this show, too. I think the, the exact way I put it was like there's like three planets, but there's four Earths in this in this story. Like <laughs> it's it's one per episode basically. The first one is the one uh, Romy and uh, George try and create for themselves. Like this this Earth, which is just a paradise for them, like a perfect place of what they can imagine Earth to be, and that that ends terribly <laughs> and then then <laughs> yeah then because um ultimately uh Romy's desire to see the earth of her memory again that's what com is trying to take her to it's 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 this elusive quality of what earth means to her of of what earth means to humans like that's why Calm can't find it. The first place he takes to her is basically Earth as it could be without humans. It's just a a world entirely without organic life, just where the where the elements themselves are shaping it and have become these these inorganic silica life forms, which make giant Jenga thing towers and batter spaceships. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and then the th third episode we see like the Earth as it is like it's it's as hu human society has shaped it this massively industrialized place existing in a forever now like just dis disdainful of its past and just not giving a damn about its future uh what one thing i i loved was like the little touch of the giant mega court being tezuka inc and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. that there's a lot of little references yeah and 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 the, the, the final one though is is like what we get in the, the final episode, which is the Earth as Romy remembers it, which is a fake Earth. It's an an ideal and artificial one, which is, I think, kind of speaks to what Romy represents to that society herself. She's she's not she's like her pure her pureness is a fiction it's there's there has never been a pure human and there never will be a pure human it's just they they and if she returns home they will put her in glass jars and dissect her yeah and so like it's yeah there's no life if she returns home to this fantasy mm -hmm. either so yeah yeah it's, it's just yeah. like it's a very yeah. melancholic story overall like it like this the the classic wistfulness at the passing of time and 
our general ability of humans to destroy themselves in the universe not noticing or caring of our passing individually collectively this is why i say yeah. suzuka is like 100 percent like before his time <laughs> i think like he's a very very millennial slash boomer. the original black pill yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> tezuka pilled and if you see a little rat man doing cultural Bolshevism on your perfect society, maybe just don't think about that too hard. That shit happens all through the original Hinatori. Like some like awful guy who's like, hey, I'm just here to sell some shit. That's fine. Yeah. And, and these like goddess like, yes, please sell your wares on my planet. And then it's just like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to get everyone high on drugs that makes them love guns. This isn't a metaphor. This is just literally plot advancement. I, I mean, I mean, he's the snake to Eden, right? He is. Uh, yes he is 100 yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's how knowledge is dangerous which is also part of like the garden of eden theme it's mm -hmm. just like oh it seems so innocuous to tell them where you're from mm -hmm. but like if you tell them where you're from then yeah i, I liked how the Moopy society was basically just based on kane just sees his mom do three things it's it's she farms she takes care of him and she, she maintains the uh, spaceship mm -hmm. and like that's all the Moopies do they their entire society just farms they have their families and they sort of venerate and look after the spaceship that their ancestors are in. And they don't seem to have what, any... What, what? No, they don't, they don't look after the spaceship. They actively don't, they've, they've, they don't they've, touch they've stuck, it. They've stuck it in a huge temple. Like, that's veneration. I don't think they looked after it at all. I think they it kind of felt like they just kept it in a box. It's 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 a it's a society run by an immortal shapeshifter. So of course they're just going to copy what other people did poorly, yeah. um, or maybe really com compellingly if you want to fuck your mom. But that's about <laughs> it. Uh, the only other things I was going to mention was I really like the the third planet, the the like the the inorganic life form mm -hmm. planet. It looked really weird, and CG was really well used in that. Um, I also mm. liked a couple of touches to Pluto. So there was one reference of the original Tezuka design of Pluto in the Hall of Robots that uh, Zudaban's ship had. Yeah. Um, you don't see the face, but you do see the black body and the red um, band. And then also that weird nuke robots that came in the fourth episode. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. So those heads are the Pluto heads. <laughs> like uh, I was going to say, that, that uh, looked familiar. <laughs> Yeah, I I also just as a side 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 uh side note um ah fuck it's gone now. Oh, yeah, I don't know I don't know why they had to split it up into four episodes. It was originally a movie and it, yeah. I felt like it would have been fine to just keep it as a movie. Like one episode is 19 minutes and that is including credits that <laughs> of about a minute and a bit. Like right. That are the same damn song, keeps yeah. me forever. Good song. I didn't dislike. I didn't dislike it. I, no, but I just don't understand why but, they felt they had to cut it up into four episodes. Studio Four C is pretty experienced about like what sells in terms of limited series yeah. versus what sells in terms of movies. But who knows if it's that or if it's Hulu? And there's weird stuff going on with Hulu because it's getting like assimilated into the Disney blob yeah. as we speak. I mean, we so. we got it. Us Brits got it on Disney Plus. Yeah. yeah, that's where um, I got to. Maybe uh, that's how that's what happened because we had like the whole like Tengoku Daimyo or Daya whatever yeah, the delusion, delusion thing Daimyo. that made no sense. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. I I don't well, know. I don't know. Think I probably enjoyed it more as four episodes than I would have marathoning in it. I I think like those bite bite sized 
things of no. one world and one th one thing, which then have a cohesion when you look at them as a whole. I think, yeah, that's okay. It worked well. Didn't overstay its welcome. Cool. Okay, let's take a break now that we have <laughs> given some very scattered thoughts on uh, Phoenix Eden 17. We'll be back to talk about Pluto on Netflix. Eight episodes, but deceptively, around nine fucking hours of content just blasted <laughs> in your face. So... Yeah. <laughs> we'll have proportionally more to say about it. Speaking of should have been a movie, shouldn't have been a movie, uh -huh. <laughs> should not have been a movie. Uh, yeah. And we're back. As we said before, we'll be covering... Pluto on Netflix just came out. I wish I'd looked up the director before starting this. We'll cut it in. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know if you should bother. Uh, his name is uh, Toshiro Kawaguchi, and he's done nothing else. <laughs> uh, Tosh uh, incorrect. It's Toshio uh, Kawaguchi. Ah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, but um, barring the president presentational issues, the the idea of eight hour long episodes that seem to largely line up with the volumes. I think Duncan. Uh, or someone might be able to correct me on that. Uh, I did enjoy it. I think it's an interesting ensemble story where we have all of these robots who are also embodying uh, Tezuka archetypes and really just seeing how each one of them has dealt with the loss and trauma of this Iraq-like invasion that has basically ruined a country and embittered some of the world's greatest minds against the very idea of human survival or progress. Uh I think Geschicht, uh, which is face or visage in German, um, was a largely a great viewpoint character because it was a mystery. And after a certain point, we're pretty sure like what Pluto's agenda is, even if we don't necessarily know who's behind it. And the escalation at the end was maybe not for me, um, just in terms of taking it from a very personal drama of how we all deal with loss to just like, I'm going to wreck the whole world. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I did, I did enjoy it, and I did enjoy mm. that it, it, it finally, to, to kind of roughly go over the plot, that eventually it, it takes the combination of these three different robots um, all put together, Gashist's memory and uh, Epsilon's, like, despair and Astro Boy's, like, childish optimism to make a, a character that can defeat um, a guy who wants to do a genocide. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, I, it, it was also just, like fucking long like i'm not yeah. used to watching hour-long anime episodes and it was wild that like at sometimes i enjoyed how they made it, me sit with it. it was it's what made um what's her face the girl uran uh encountering like an amnesiac pluto i found that to be probably one of my favorite moments where it's just like oh not not <laughs> incredibly depressing like anti-robot racism and suffering and all that but just a, a character just like meeting someone where they are and how like how that is something that can revive your hope in humanity or a series you're watching or what have you to, to just see this like moment, this moment of niceness and listening and opening openness. And I did enjoy how epic it felt with these like huge ass episodes. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What did y'all think about it when you came away or even in the middle of watching? Uh, like I mentioned before, I was never a, a huge Tezuka fan or, have much of a knowledge base so i came into this knowing that pluto was a well-regarded manga 
but not realizing until about halfway through the second episode that, oh, wait, this is an Astro Boy thing. <laughs> yeah, that was a really beautiful moment where Jeff puts it on, you know, in our Slack channel, yeah. like, wait, this is Tesco? This is Astro Boy? And we're like, yeah, I, I, I think it's literally like, so, so, so it's literally just Astro Boy, I think was what you asked. Oh, so, yeah, yeah kind of. Because like I saw Adam and I was like, Adam. Yeah, that sounds really familiar. <laughs> and I googled it, and I was like, "Oh, it was called Astro Boy here." And I was like, "Okay, yeah. so now I see what's going on." And once <laughs> I had that understanding of that, oh, this is like sort of like a, a mega crossover of a bunch of Tezuka's different uh, robot stories. Then that somewhat colored my perception of this because this really, really felt like when DC does like a big like prestige <laughs> crossover thing with like Alex yeah. Ross where they go into the future and all the superheroes are old and they're calling each other by their first names and like they're barely wearing their costumes and you're supposed to be like really in awe of their like oh they're they're being very serious and adults but they're still you know a six-armed like Scottish robot or like uh, a couple of robot pro wrestlers and so it has that weird again somewhat fan fiction feel to it f for me and the you know the plot the mystery the story the themes like those are still like reasonably good like there's a reason why pluto is well regarded and i can tell it from this adaptation but it also felt like people playing with somebody else's toys and that always like and, and and you get the same feeling with like a lot of modern day Star Wars like when you take a well regarded story from a megastar you know foundational creator in the industry it's always going to feel a little bit like fan fiction. I I just want to point out apart from Pluto, uh, sorry, apart from Astro Boy, all of those strongest robots in the world were new to the original manga. I don't think that's the case. Uh, it's the case with Gishist, and it's the case with North Number Two. And I'm, I'm the only one that might not be is uh, Fotar, which I guess it's what is Epsilon. Um, Are you talking about no, Epsilon? No, Fotar, first feature Epsilon. Epsilon was first featured okay. in the Greatest Robot in the World story arc too. So they're all used afterwards, but they all were introduced in the Greatest Robot in the World arc. Okay, but Pluto is a remake of the Greatest Robot in the World arc. Yes, yes, yeah. it is. Yeah, but to make it sound like it, it's like a fucking Avengers disassemble, um, like <laughs> it's not. It's more like Tesca just needed to make seven cool fucking robot, well, six cool fucking robots and Atom, and then uh, Urasawa took that and and fucking ran with it. Well, I like I said, I don't have the knowledge base to argue with you, so I'm going to let that slide. <laughs> I might come back at you in a later episode once I've done my research. <laughs> But regardless of whether, I mean, like, yes, your your point is taken, Andy, but this is still, like, taking taking a bunch of characters from Astro Boy's, like, most famous arc and then retelling them as all, like, serious people with jobs. Yeah, I, I, um, I think... And, and hobbies, like, looking at snails or beating <laughs> each other up I feel or that, having a ton of kids. Yeah, I feel that my problem with the series or, or the show in general was that I... It was very hard for me to get emotionally invested in any of the characters who I just knew were going to die. I know this is really dumb, but I, I feel that this is kind of like, this is kind of for me the big, not failing, but the big 
maybe my own mental problem with trying to get invested in a show is it's like you've got Brando and Hercules who are both fucking like battle-hardened warriors who have both got families and both got like this and these other things that I'm like, these are just sort of red death flags, like death flag, death flag, death flag, death flag are popping up everywhere. And I'm like, well, they're going to be gone in the next episode or two. And they are. And so for me, it wasn't that interesting <laughs> until about like halfway through where Atom dies. I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is something new. This is something interest like good. Um, and yeah, it's uh, that that's when I sort of started getting engaged. But I was actually like found myself actively trying to keep myself awake for like the first three episodes because <laughs> uh, yeah, they were really long and. Yeah, not, I, not I don't, enjoyable in my so, eyes. So, like, for Atom dying to me was not a surprise, but, like, the, the, the surprise was Geist dying to me. Like, because it's very, very rare that you have someone like Geist, who is, is your protagonist, is, is the viewpoint we're following through this story, and then he's gone. And uh, and as as Ben alluded, he, he isn't gone completely, because him and all the other uh, great robots get melded together within the consciousness of Atom, because a human is never produced in isolation. A human is always a result of, of many different people and cultures and all these things. And for Atom to become the perfect robot, to become more human, he has to be not just created, but an amalgamation of experiences and sadness. They, they, they create this super robot. Uh, like, he can't be woken because... Uh, the, the way the genius doctor uh, decides to create him is, is make a thousands and thousands of every poss simulate every possible personality billions yeah. nine point nine point nine million personalities, personalities and put them billion. into one yeah. but billion put them into one person but they have to have a single thing and that is to organize it and that is for them to learn to have negative emotions strong negative emotions like hate and anger and despair and you hear that fucking 10 times and i get so sick of it yeah yeah <laughs> it, it, it took it took a long time to get to there and i did like the ultimate ultimate upshot that like we think of rage as powerful because it's so destructive but actually there's not that much impressive inherently in destroying something and that we can have sorrow mm. which is which inspires us to preservation and like hope and joy which preser which push us towards creation and like the idea that that tenma uh zoomer <laughs> zoomer gendo tenma as as jeff put it uh just a nonsense string of words uh that he that his despair over adam boy being a a poor recreation of his dead son and just generally feeling like robotics is doomed, he, of course, goes to the most negative emotion he can possibly think of as this way of tipping the balance. But there is this idea that, like, the greater compassion and, like, it's not just his creation, Adam, but also um, nice big nose doctor and man who dies oh. off screen, the three great oh. minds of <laughs> robotics. Ocha, Ocha no uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That um that their creations also have to come in too. It's it's not just this one brilliant mind that he is too afflicted by negativity, too afflicted by despair, too afflicted by apocalyptic thinking to fully appreciate like the possibilities. Um, and he's just looking for raw power in this repeated attempt he has to infuse negative emotion into this deadlocked android brain. And I really did like that part. I do agree with Andy that it took way too long for that to come from the incidental lines of the characters 
into a realization of the conclusion of the mystery and the crisis and what have you. But um, I did like it. I just mm. it's it's just a very weird pacing that I'm not used to with anime. And I do think I struggled with it by the end, because like there's a point where you're pretty sure who Pluto is mm-hmm. and you're pretty sure that all the times they've been like, oh, uh, Dr. Abula seems like a robot, even though he's a person. <laughs> waka waka. <laughs> and you yeah. hear by that point four times like the best, the, the most perfect AI is that who can lie to themselves. And you're like, yeah. well, it's clearly this fucker. You made the perfect robot. You know, it's like an ugly cunt. Like, <laughs> I, Jesus. I was reading this back when the manga, back when it was, was being serialized uh, with scans, scans uh, a little bit behind when the official stuff was coming out, uh, but before the official English stuff was coming out. And at the time, part of me was like, well, there's there's two candidates for 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 Pluto. One obviously is, is the one we it arrives at, and the other is uh, Tenma. He's too perfect to be human. It, it, most of the time, he's doing these incredible feats which no other human can manage, and he's afflicted with this great despair. And for a long time, I, I like as it was coming out, like a little drip by drip, you felt it didn't feel as as uh, predestined a conclusion as it did while watching this. Like, I don't know if it's just something about the presentation of it, seeing it all flow past, which makes it far more obvious that Adela's going to be the the person behind it all. That, but like, t- ten was such a is made to seem so mysterious and so godlike. Uh, he's just separated from and like everybody, like he. He's yeah. just, he just comes in as this weird mystery guy and then leaves. And he's, he, yeah. he just, he, he's, as Jeff said, he's a godlike character. He just fixes mm. shit, fixes Astro Boy, and then leaves, which I guess is also then like, why can't he fix any of the other robots? Uh, but that's because he yeah. only cared about Astro Boy, because that's his yeah. reincarnation of his son. Uh, disappointing robot son. <laughs> Yeah, I remember some some of the like fan fears at the time was like like he'd like committed suicide out of despair and like this uh, th- there was a robot whose consciousness got put into him and all these things and it's it's like that the actual answer is far more co- more coherent and and actually sort of consistent than that. Um, I, I liked how Pluto himself got a little bit of a, a redemption arc, arc at the end that we actually. All the stuff in Holland with uh, uh, running of the Flower Institute isn't ju- isn't just thrown yeah, out. Yeah, Sahad, Sahad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, his backstory is like probably the most tragic of anybody's. Is that he just wanted to make flowers bloom in the desert, and instead he's being just used to like destroy everything from a guy who couldn't handle that people died in war, mm-hmm. um, which is not to minimize his suffering, but. Yeah, Abula uh, Abu kind of suffers in general from being just kind of like anybody who's like he's gotten so angry that's the only emotion he feels now. Like that is that is I feel like an abandonment of what was otherwise a pretty subtle like idea of emotions that like pe- we we are defined by anger, we are defined by hatred, but it's impossible just to be all one emotion. You can't be all happiness. So I feel like it almost feels like a betrayal when we have Abula mm-hmm. who's just all hatred now he has no other emotions he just hates everything mm-hmm. yeah yeah 
It's like he was frozen the moment, like the moment the the robot decided on him, because there was a real Doctor Abdullah mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. this. The robot exists, like the the moment it decides that it's to take on him and to take on his hatred and his despair and all those things. It's like it's frozen, like he can't move past that moment. Yeah. He's stuck reliving this war which everyone else has moved on from and like it may be a trauma that people like hercules or um brando try and atone for but they they've their actions are in reaction to it they're not reliving it whereas uh uh abdullah is is it's essentially refighting it he's he's determined it's not over as far as he's concerned it's it's it will never be over Mm -hmm. until everything is over it's it's like there's there's no winner, and he's d- determined to just. And I think that is also somewhat at the heart of the the themes of this is that Adam is you know almost killed, brought back by Doctor Tenma, but in the same brain lock that the uh, original Pluto robot, or I guess not Pluto technically, but the creator of Pluto, Doctor Abula, and he is knocked out of that topor by inheriting Geist's rage and hatred. But we also get the backstory of where that came from, where he, mm-hmm. you know, it, the, 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 the notion of a robot that can kill a human being in this world is so foreign that there is exactly one other known instance of it happening. And mm-hmm. they keep him like pinned to a rock in a cave because he is so terrifying, <laughs> but simultaneously so fascinating. And we but find also, out that the reason Geist was the second one is that he had adopted a nearly broken robot, raised it as his son, which was then subsequently like kidnapped and murdered uh, by an anti-robot fanatic slash opportunistic thief. I don't. I wasn't sure if his yeah. like the actual killer uh, had done it for any reason beyond just it, hating robots, or if there was something else going on it, there. It was pure hatred of robots but the mm-hmm. way that he was doing it no, was opportunistic no, no. in the way that he recognized that there was a pattern of breaking of uh sensors breaking he would go in and fix it but then before he'd fix it he'd be able to take his next victim yeah and yeah so it was an opportunistic so the child his child's death was opportunistic it yeah. was not premeditated but the fact that this guy was like, I'm going to go kill a robot because I know that it's a robot because I don't believe in robot rights. That mm-hmm. isn't, you know, that's how I read it. As I don't know whether you felt that yeah. way, Duncan. <laughs> and I think... I, I've actually read it slightly differently. I read it as like he was just um, a extremely... Like we're shown him as a child and he's it before anything happens to him, which would lead him to have resentments against robots. And even then he's portrayed as not really having any empathy, being violent. And like, so there's something like, like this, like there's a pathology to his, his actions, which is not just based on um, a hatred of robots. It's something deeper to that. in some ways, it's an opportun. It's not just a crime of opportunity, in terms of uh, the target. It's a crime in of opportunity in terms of motivation. Like it's just okay. I have all these violent urges. It's fine to let them out on robots. No one yeah. cares. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so he yeah, does. he was he was displaying mm-hmm. psychopathic behavior, which is very common mm-hmm. against yeah. serial killers that you see 
and 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 it's because society othered the robots that they became his targets. Yeah, but it's, it's he had these urges, and society made it okay for him to attack them. Uh, which is why a lot of serial killers attack marginalized communities is because they feel that it's okay because they are not the communities that the police care about, and therefore he will not be prosecuted. Yeah. Um. So it's the same logic. It, like, and I feel this is the other weird thing about Pluto is there's like a lot of segregation shit. That they don't really question. They just are like, "Yep, yeah, well, you walk through the you walk through the robot door if you're a robot, and if you're a human, yeah. you don't walk through the you walk through the human door." Like, like I was pretty why? pleased in the first episode how little like there were people being like, "Oh, you wouldn't understand your robot." I'm like, well, wow, because she's just kind of like he passes. He kind of in 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 the strict sense of the word, he kind of like is treated respectfully by people around him. Mm-hmm. And then of course we have to slam straight to like the world's most bigoted music composer working with an ex-soldier robot I respect the troops again, sort of thing going yeah, on I, I, thought, I wish i wish it would have been like more subtle like it like mm. i wish microaggressions against robots weren't ubiquitous so the characters who haven't got along with history and who still insist on discriminating against robots despite the fact that society as a whole but has largely I, accepted them after this catastrophic war would have been maybe a bit more of a fine-grained thing but i understand yeah. why they didn't do it I, we can't have subtle emotions here. i felt that there i mean i feel that one thing tezka's as you've known noticed in like phoenix um he doesn't do subtlety he very much does like <laughs> extreme emotions like to the point in which in the pluto manga um there is no like the evil guy is like a, a not a star anyway the, the evil guy he gets so angry he bites a column and he's just like it's like what the fuck like that's how angry he gets but I felt that there is that I felt that there is microaggressions because like you said like everybody says to all the ro- like every robot like you won't understand you're a robot or you will more you will understand this more because you are a robot and it's like this there is still segregation and there is still microaggressions just inherent in the whole show yeah, Which, uh, I, just then, thought I, I thought I was seeing a more integrated society than I was because there cannot be a story about but, robots without a racism allegory. But I, I, and I feel that that is also the point. I feel that that yeah, is exactly what it's trying to get at. And Could, if we have eight whole episodes, we we have time to like play it a little bit softer <laughs> uh, than we did. I actually, but that's just me. But yeah. one thing I did notice that throughout the the series that all of the robots that had been traumatized by taking part in the war and the one who had consciously objected to the war conscientiously objected to the war and then went into the cleanup process all have become sort of either surrogate parents or literal parents or in Gashi's uh, case he adopted a child after the fact and them and also the robots that they are you know married to have all sort of they started creating families and have started sort of becoming more human sort of un unknowingly to the people around them one thing that happens with Gashis is that he is uh when after he commits his murder his memory is of his not only of his murder but also his uh child that he adopted is deleted because the Mm. people who own him don't want to admit that he did this and get rid of him because he's such a valuable asset in every other respect and one thing that Mm -hmm. the that I think Pluto really gets at is that Tenma, he is so, you know, he's so, you know, despairing at losing his child that he 
when he intentionally tries to break Abula out of his topor in his robot form, he only introduces hate. He gives him the last moments of his life because we see his ch- children being killed and we and before we know he has been replaced by a robot, we also find out that, you know, after that, after we find he was replaced by a robot, the original had actually died and not just lost most of his body. And so he he was only given the hatred of Abula, whereas Gashis, his hatred was born out of grief, but also from love. That is what tempers it and what makes Adam more stable when he is brought out and he's able to, uh, you know, he's able to become more human with the positive as well as the negative aspects of the human experience. And I think that was one of the more effective like and more subtle messages throughout is that you notice that you know the robots who are attached to children become more human in subtle ways that surprise the you know the real humans around them it's like wow you know i've never met a robot that is so empathetic before i've never never met a robot who has this seemingly uh you know real human sense and i think it's from their experience of love and not just from hatred and meanwhile, like the one of the final like major incidents of, of the shows is like the humans giving away one of Epsilon's kids for money mm-hmm. and being like, oh, we had no choice. We needed money to, to keep the orphanage open. But like they they sold a kid yeah. Yeah, they, without they... asking his father's permission <laughs> or his like adoptive father's permission. Like there is this like idea that like robot limitations are largely a social construct mm-hmm. that like robots have shown that they are able to have these intense feelings and Gashish has a great revulsion to his, uh, the, to his own hatred. And it's not that he dislikes it because it makes him less robot and more human. He just doesn't want to hate people <laughs> and yeah. doesn't, and doesn't see mm. it as an improving thing, which is in contrast to Tenma who just is like, yeah, make them hate. It'll be great. Like they'll, <laughs> yeah. they can be any person. Yeah. They can definitely, they definitely won't be some weird serial killer who, who uh, doesn't value humanity? Quickly, on a different topic. Um, sure. So, I, as I mentioned, I did read this is a this is based off of the uh, Atom Boy uh, Astro Boy comic, the greatest robots on Earth, uh, the greatest robot on Earth arc. So, I I did my research and read it. It's actually not that long. It's about a hundred and hundred and something pages um and i guess the most notable difference is there's there's one part of the pluto arc that they've added in and and anyone care to guess which part that is i don't want to (laughs) (laughs) is it the fin is it the middle east war bit it sure is (laughs) um Mm -hmm. yeah I, I mean, the original arc is fine. I can definitely see why people like it so much because you basically, it feels like the first time in which they've created a robot, that an evil character that you can't really justify as being truly evil because he's been created to kill or to destroy these other robots. And mm-hmm. the, the biggest amusement to me was the fact that they don't, all of their power levels is based on horsepower. And I think that's really oh funny because Astro yeah. has 10,000 horsepower, but, but Pluto has a million horsepower. And <laughs> instead of Pluto die, Astro Boy dying, he gets semi-defeated. And then he's like, 
oh, Mr. Temba, you have to get make me have a million horsepower. And he's like, no, I'm not giving you a million horsepower. You'll explode. And he goes, please. And then they're like, oh, all right. Yeah, I'll do that. And then he gets a million horsepower and like tries to fight him. And like, it, it's, yeah, it's just, it's a lot more sanitized. It's, it's a fun, interesting lead, especially after this, watching Pluto. Um, I bet, yeah. And like, um, the biggest, like, fucking Uran is so annoying. She's such a little brat kid. She's like, oh, Pluto, you can't defeat uh, Atom. You can't defeat Pluto anymore. You're not cool. I don't like you. And it's just like, what the fuck? And then she dresses up as Atom, which is basically her topless, but with pants on. And it's like, I'm going to go in his stead. And it's like, what the fuck? Like, it's weird. Um, yeah, it's an interesting read. I'd say give it a read, but like, I guess the big difference, like the the stuff at the end, like that is all in there pretty much. Uh, so Pluto and Atom have a fight on um, a volcano and then uh, that other fucking massive robot comes in. Its names have escaped me now. Bora. 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 Yeah, Bora comes in and then Pluto defeats Bora in Atom's stead. And saves the world, and that's basically it. But yeah, the 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 weird like the weird political angle surprisingly was not in the Tezuka stuff. Um, and you mean Tezuka didn't predict the Iraq War, <laughs> the Second Iraq War? No, surprisingly, he didn't. And Tezuka did nine eleven. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was written there all along. He's the true soothsayer. <laughs> um, but. I, yeah, so I just, I guess I wanted to just segue this into the political angle and whether that was like tastefully done or kind of forcefully done. <laughs> I mean, it was written so soon after the second Gulf War, like literally 2003 is when Pluto starts going. And part of me wonders if like the, if it basically, he didn't have that in his original draft and the... And just the current events imp- were such a like it was the first uh, saying it was the first televised war isn't entirely true, but it was it was a it was televised in a way that no war really was in real time before. Like the 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 Western powers made an effort to just have shots of their tanks and their planes rolling across Iraq on the news 24 7 just the first internet war at like, the very least const- i feel like mm-hmm. internet yeah broadcast war it, it, it's so close you i feel like he couldn't have have had that complete plan in in that complete whole thing in his head because this is w- without even talking about uh uh, the American uh, supercomputer yeah. uh, Roosevelt. Yeah, the, best, and the less we talk about that, the te- that yeah. bit. That it's... bit lost me. And I was the... like, why is there a fucking uh, teddy bear talking to me? Who then all of a sudden, like the last episode, it's like, oh, oh, all according to Kaku. This is exactly what I wanted. Finally, America, <laughs> not America, is in power again. And I was like, huh? <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's ultimately a weakness in the script because like the idea that we're inadvertently pushing each other towards Armageddon is very different from there's a com- supercomputer who's calculated all our variables and is letting us push each other towards Armageddon. But mm-hmm. maybe that's just me. I don't know. I could do without that, but I get <laughs> I get like wanting someone to be responsible. I, I get I get that there needs yeah. it to be like a reason behind something. Uh, and like an extra layer, but I felt that it wasn't necessary, and I don't think it was very conductive to the plot. I don't think it helped or like brought anything new in. It was just like, huh, that was weird. Uh, no, it's it's just that um, uh, the the whole stuff with um, uh, with Roosevelt seems like it was like throughout. We've been talking about how all these like how human emotions. Uh, things which allow these uh, the robot consciousness which has have been created to like transcend the, the limitations of their creators whereas Roosevelt is something which wholly is constrained by his and his what he's been told to do it's it's the whole um uh, sort of infinite paper clips idea it's like a machine which is told okay we want to make sure America is always dominant is always the it's always the predominant world power. It doesn't care how it achieves that or what the consequences of that is. It's just going to do that. And it has no it has no body, it has no interaction with anyone else. It just wholly sits there in a room deciding how to do this one thing. And it's it's and I think we didn't get Brow uh, one five eight nine explored that much, but he his that that's the the first robot to murder but he seems extremely um sort of contemptuous of uh roosevelt at, at the end like that roosevelt thinks it's cleverer than anyone else but it's its constraints just make it sort of pathetic to him and that it I don't know. It's, it's, I, it's like I agree with your it, reading of it, but I do think that when Roosevelt's like, and for the rest of time, you'll be my servant, is like kind yeah. of what is kind of what gives away the game because if it's just like this unthinking machine that's been constrained to drive us towards apocalypse, inadvertently, the idea that it would it would still think about its own benefit is kind of disappointing. But in, then again, I don't know. that That's a character that's like introduced and resolved in a single episode. And also Brow1859 or whatever is also introduced and resolved in a single episode after being a relatively static character in that episode. So it's kind of like the idea of other, of other malevolent intelligences I don't think is fully baked because I don't think that it's interested in exploring how we can create psychopaths with artificial intelligence it's interested in how we create humans who behave like psychopaths by using artificial intelligence but maybe that's just me no i think that's a fair reading yeah i i mean i i don't have much to say much more to say i i'm glad i probably wouldn't have mainline strip watched it as much as quickly as i did if it wasn't for this pod but i'm glad that i did yeah because uh I did enjoy it. I, and just, the, I guess the other thing that I wanted to mention is like the animation just being constantly stunning. Um, yeah. Like they yeah. absolutely. Great example of CG potential. Yeah. yeah. They absolutely nailed Urasawa's designs on everything. And it was fucking mm, yeah. beautiful. And again, like going back to my favorite moment, which was that second half of the first episode where you see 
the maestro and North number two, um, sort of their their eventual sort of like chalk and cheese and then sort of coming together. Like that's really beautifully shot with a beautiful song that is just repeatedly played over and over again with similar shots that are repeatedly played. And also like when I rewatched it, because I didn't appreciate this um, the first time, but uh, like it even felt that there was like a grain, there was like a visual grain on that second half as well, which made it feel mm. more like set in a time, more unique, more like more beautiful in a way. Um, and I really, really loved that scene that was like my favorite scene and i mean urasawa's designs are just not the sort which typically animate well because they he's got he's such fine lines and he uses lots of hatching and uh lines within that so yeah like you have to animate yes. every line it's yeah not you shape. can't you can't tween that and... shit it's so unique his designs it's so unique like <laughs> the way that all the characters are notably different um yeah, it's it's not a simple job at all to animate his stuff. And I feel they did like a fucking beautiful effort. The use of CG was fantastic. Sure, you have like some pretty, some garish stuff with like some CG cars, but the majority of the rest of it, I felt was pretty tastefully mm-hmm. done, especially when you go to like the field of road, the field of tulips. That was gorgeous. Um, and yeah, like just an all over fascinatingly like gorgeous show and i i really enjoyed it um i guess favorite scenes for everyone else and then we'll wrap it up i i mean i the recurring motif of the flowers painted on the wall and just Mm -hmm. like watching that come back i think is my favorite like visual element that recurred in in pluto for myself the the scene of uran and uh pluto just meeting it like her meeting this this person in this underpass who just doesn't know how he got there he's confused and just can only express himself through through painting these flowers because he 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 just doesn't know anything else and how we slowly get the the tragedy of of the backstory of that and like tragedy is there in the original as well but it's okay I, I guess like what I was trying to get at was like the tragic, the, it actually focuses a lot more on Pluto. It focuses a lot more. It, most of it is done through Pluto as opposed to concentrating on atom at all. Like, so he's less of a mystery. It's, it's not in the a mystery original. at all. It literally starts off with okay. like the, the uh, Pluto being created and him being, and the, uh, the, the Sultan going, Fucking kill these seven robots, please. Okay, thanks, bye. Uh, But the whole Bora stuff, like the whole Bora um, committee murders, that was a completely new layer that was put on top. Yes, that's that's good to know that that he was a more traditional antagonist in in the original then. Like he was a a constant presence, whereas part of, of what made this interesting was like, obviously it was a mystery, like we were being... As yeah. I was alluding to earlier, we yeah, didn't yeah, yeah. really know who was was doing it. Yeah. So, what, what about you, you, Jeff and Ben? What were you, you, your your moments then, or your scenes? I already answered the uh, the the motif of so, the painted flowers. The yeah. yeah, yeah. Although the show's never as the show's never as majestic as in the first episode. Like the the mm. how big the world feels, <laughs> how like we don't know how far mm. we are in the future. We don't know how far robot technology has progressed. I think that the the first episode is also just a masterclass of like creating a big world that gets narrowed down episode by episode to solve the mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's spot on. 
Jeff, what were you going to say about your favorite like shot or scene? I was just going to say the uh, the North Number Two sort of almost like anthology side story mm-hmm. was yeah. such a nice little like tightly contained microcosm of the themes of the overall show and at that point how mysterious the the threat was of him you know becoming sort of you know human 2.0 and then casting off his uh his cape that he because he was so he was a shit you know he was a weapon of war he was ashamed of what he had done in the wars you know he wears this cloak to sort of hide his like hyper uh sort of specialized body and when the threat approaches the castle and he casts off his robe and, you know, shows off his, like, crazy weaponry. I thought that was a, an effective ending in a way to sort of, sort of, like, heighten the, you know, the, the drama of what was, you know, of the mystery at that point. And, and, but I thought that, that that arc was nice. Yeah, um, I agree. Like, and also that reveal was, like, beautiful. Yeah. I have a final question for you guys. Like, we, we, we've all said this is this was a marathon to get through. Do you think it could have been condensed or do you think that was an impossible task? Do you think they made the only choice they could? I'm fine with the length. I just wish that the episodes were shorter so there was more and like they were the episode breaks lined up more with complete stories and not with just whatever happened to fit in a volume of a manga. I yeah. I agree with Ben. 20 years <laughs> ago. Yeah. Yeah, I think by by virtue of it being an adaptation they and it being so tightly plotted that there wasn't really a lot of fat to get rid of but there was just also so much like yeah i think there was a certain amount of obligation to have seven well rounded out robots where you could tell the <laughs> yeah, exact same story with two or three yeah and that's just a virtue of it being an adaptation of another work you know again that sort of like playing with other people's mm-hmm. toys effect yeah Well, on that note, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Tune in for our episode next month. We'll be talking about our favorite things, both airing and discovered during the year of our Lord 2023. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. Find us on Facebook, search for Keyframes Podcast. Find us on Twitter at Keyframes Pod. Email us questions, keyframespodcast at gmail.com. And most of all, tell a friend. But not just any friend, then. I would uh, tell the friend who's called Wassily as if that's a fucking name ever. Like, what the fuck was oh, that? We're going to... I'm pretty sure it's Vasily. Offend some Slavic people, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's Vasily. Oh, dear. Great, we'll get more Slavic <laughs> listeners. Wassily oh, is not a name. <laughs> you could go Wesley, you could go Vasily. There's lots, there's lots there. To all of our Vasilis and Wesleys yeah. listening, we apologize on behalf we love of Andrew Ray. Yeah, we do. We, we, yeah, yeah. I do. Except I, for Andy. Yeah, he change your name. It's dumb. <laughs> Say goodbye, everybody. <laughs> goodbye. I obviously don't mean that. Goodbye. I obviously don't mean that. <laughs>